Hello, everyone, and welcome to At The Letters for February the 8th, 2024. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you alongside Arden's Welling, and this show is produced this week by Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. So we will get to the Justin Turner news, the Vlad Guerrero Jr. news, and start casting ahead as well. But Arden, I don't know about you, I'm just at this point in the offseason, having kind of followed all of the ups and downs, I'm just ready for actual baseball. <laughs> Well, the the good news for you is this is the last week without some sort of baseball activity for the next eight months. Yeah, I'm I'm actually really relieved to hear that and to know that because look, this offseason, it just wasn't a good offseason with the Blue Jays, really from start to finish. And I'm not saying it was disastrous. I'm not saying they still can't have a really good team in 2024. But if you're just looking at this offseason in isolation, there was a lot of disappointment. There were a lot of letdowns, even right down to the Vlad Guerrero Jr. arbitration hearing where they go to ARB with Vladdy. He ends up beating them in that case, which we'll get to. But it's not to say it's a disaster, but it wasn't a great offseason. And I think, you know, fans certainly frustrated, understandably so. I think at this point it is what it is, and I am looking forward to just actually looking at the games and looking at what this team will be once it takes the field. Yeah, it's definitely not the outcome the Blue Jays are hoping for coming into this offseason, quite clearly. Um, obviously not the the outcome any Blue Jays fan was was hoping for. Like, I don't think you ever get your ideal 99th percentile offseason ever. Uh, I don't think you ever go into an, you know, come out of an offseason saying we did exactly what we wanted to do. Like everything fell into place. Every free agent loved the opportunity that we had for them. Every dollar fit perfectly in our budget. Every trade negotiation just fell into our lap and the value was amazing. And we came out like so much better than we were last year. Like I think you're always dealing with some level of compromise and you're always kind of dealing with, um, you know, an outcome that isn't your ideal favorite outcome, but is one that, you know, you, you can at least live with and, and be settled with. So like, where do you think this was like on the percentile gauge? Where do you think this falls for the Blue Jays in terms of this outcome for their offseason? Yeah, once you started phrasing it that way, that's where my mind went. And without having given this too much thought, like, I don't know, I'm inclined to say like 30th. What do you think? Yeah, I might go a little higher than that. It's, um, yeah, I might go like 40th, 45th. I don't think it's above 50. No. Um, Because I just think that, yeah, a lot of the avenues that the Blue Jays wanted to go down just led to dead ends, unfortunately for them and unfortunately for fans. Like, that's like, that's the context of this offseason, right? Is that the Blue Jays came into it wanting to make like the splash of all splashes and pouring a ton of time and energy and resources into a recruitment of Shohei Otani. And he ends up choosing the Dodgers. And then they fly to California to meet with Yoshinobu Yamamoto. He ends up choosing the Dodgers. They talk to the Padres about Juan Soto and the Yankees show up with an offer that um, I don't think the Blue Jays would and probably could not beat. Um, so Soto goes to the Yankees. You could probably say something similar for Jorge Polanco, although, you know, I don't know how much interest the Blue Jays had there, but I don't think the Blue Jays would have beat the package the Mariners put together. And then they looked at what was already a very weak free agent class and saw two players in terms of position players and saw two players atop 
that market and Cody Bellinger and Matt Chapman who have a ton of red flags and who have very high asking prices from an agent who is very difficult to deal with. And I think the Blue Jays said, eh, we don't really feel like taking on that much risk and that much commitment for some players with a lot of red flags in their profiles, particularly when our competitive window might be closing in two years. So let's just do like the prudent, unsatisfying thing and spread around our money to a bunch of mid-tier free agents on short-term deals who plug some roster holes and see how things go over the first 100 games and try to get better at the trade deadline. Yeah, just on Umpolanco real quick, because you mentioned him, I, I get the sense that the Mariners were, were by far the most motivated team there. And I think the questions around injuries and his defense, like I don't think the Jays were a close second on that. I think the Mariners were by far the team that was most motivated there. Um, you know, if we were to ask Ross Atkins and he was you know going to be super, super forthcoming with us, clearly I think his answer would be a lot higher. He might say, I don't know, is it, it was this the 60th percentile outcome for them? I mean, we all know what the 99th was. We, you know, it wasn't that. Um, the Jays internally, I think, believe in some of their own internal players. And that's going to be a bet that, you know, we'll see how that pays off. And in my opinion, I personally think, and I've said this, you know, over the course of the last few months, I thought Reese Hoskins would have been a guy that they should have spent more money to get. I thought Willie Adamas would have been a guy that they, they should have, you know, found a way to trade for. Um, in theory, that still could happen, although I'm not holding my breath there. And, and maybe round that out with guys like IKF or, you know, of course, we've talked about other names there that, that could be fits to round out a roster. But, you know, here we are. They've landed on Justin Turner as as one of the key, key parts of this offseason. And it's going to be really interesting. I mean, there are a lot of ways we can take this with Justin Turner, but this is a guy who's historically been really, really good every single season since he broke out 10 or 11 years ago. Just before we go there, like, am I missing another position player who got traded who is really impactful other than Polanco and Soto? That's um, it, really. I mean, you could, I wouldn't say that Eugenio Suarez is like super impactful, yeah. um, you know, now, he actually, even putting Polanco in that discussion is like even a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I think Polanco is like kind of comparable to Turner, probably like a two war player. I think um, Eugenio Suarez is, uh, you know, more like a one war player. That being said, like if the Jays had Suarez, it would just deepen things a little bit. Like that's not not a fit for this team. Obviously, he's in Arizona now. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a list in front of me, but off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of other big names who moved. Yeah, so I just think that like the the circumstances of this offseason were really unideal for the Blue Jays to address some of the things they needed to address. And that's not to excuse them. Like, look, their job as a front office is to make the team better and to get deals done and to know when you need to take on a bit more risk or push beyond your comfort zone in order to capitalize on, you know, a, a window that is rapidly uh closing with uh, you know, two very young, very good elite talents uh you know under your control for only two more years but yeah they went down the Shohei Otani route he chose somewhere else I mean they just did not have the prospect capital to beat the Yankees in a trade for Juan Soto I agree with you I think Reese Hoskins or JD Martinez would have been better fits for the spot that um Justin Turner ended up filling but beyond that, like, are are people really ruining that the Blue Jays didn't add Mitch Garver or Teoscar Hernandez um, or Jock Peterson? Like, yeah, these guys would have helped. But in terms of like the big swing impact talent, the Blue Jays were 
it seems, involved on all of those guys. Um, the conditions just were not favorable for them to get something done. Yeah, and as a as you said there, the job of a of a GM is to turn unfavorable conditions into favorable conditions, right? It's like you're you're going up against twenty nine other individuals who are actively working against you and competing for the same resources and and players and talent, and so your job is to is to navigate that situation and make sure that your roster is elite regardless of the challenges that you face. And like I said, we'll see where this lands for the Blue Jays. They've at this point, and this is why I'm kind of a little bit done with the offseason talk, um, is like we can debate it all day long and we've debated it for months now. And like, I'm just not sure there are a lot of new takes to be had. We all know this wasn't the plan A for the Blue Jays. We can all look at this roster and say, there are real questions here. This is not a perfect team. This was not a perfect offseason. And if you're a fan listening to this and you're disappointed, like pretty understandable why. But at the same time, going over it for the 10th time, I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, do we really? And this is why I'm just glad that spring is approaching because, yeah, like there's not a lot more nuanced arguments to be had. It wasn't a very good offseason. Yeah, there's just there's a real vacuum of like concrete material substantive things to talk about right now because no game that matters has been played yet. And by the way, no game that matters will be played for like two more months. So uh, get ready for spring training, Ben, because I don't know that that's really going to change things in terms of uh, the discourse and discussion about what the Blue Jays may or may not be. But yeah, it is like it's probably just even overcomplicating like what is going to lead to the success or failure of the Blue Jays to get really caught up in like the marginal differences and the projections between like a Turner and a Martinez or like the amount of risk that you would be taking on in a multi-year pact for a Solaire versus a one-year deal for Turner Martinez you know worrying too much about like the handedness of the the bench bats and you know uh, the 40 or 50 played appearances that Dalton Varsho might need to take against a lefty and not the most ideal circumstances. Like really the like the the success or failure of the Blue Jays as a team offensively, at least this isn't to touch their pitching staff, but just offensively, how they're going to be better offensively in 24 than 23 is going to be Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer. Like those are the three players who are going to take the most played appearances on this club if healthy. And those are three players who have been elite in their careers. Um, and, you know, with Springer, he's a bit of a different conversation. But for Bichette and Guerrero, you're talking about two guys in their mid-20s who should be entering their primes and putting up like really, really high impact offensive seasons. Bo Bichette with a high fly ball to left. Ramirez back, turning and watching, and it is gone. Number 20 on the season for Bo Bichette, and it is now 8-5. to five. Boy, that was a no-doubter. A little bit of a smile from Bo Bichette. It really does, like, not to be too reductionist, but it really does come down to those three players playing to their potential, just considering the volume of plate appearances they're going to be taking, particularly in big spots for your club. If you get really good seasons from those three, I think the Blue Jays are going to have a good season offensively. Right. And so this is where, you know, when I say like, hey, they didn't have a very good offseason. Well, look, they're making the case. They're, they're making the bet that maybe they didn't have to have an amazing offseason. Maybe they just had to have a solid offseason and they're going to be good enough regardless because with a solid offseason, which, you know, again, we'll see if this turns out to be one or not in, in time. 
But with a solid offseason, maybe you get those internal improvements. Maybe it goes a step further, and your Spencer Horowitzes and your Allen Rodens and maybe Aralvis Martinez or Damiano Palmigiani. Maybe some of these guys emerge as real players in the course of a season who are hitting you know, doubles and home runs and singles in big spots for this team. And it turns out that you didn't actually have to go out and rely as heavily externally. But at this point in time in February, as we're looking at this, that's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know if that's actually going to happen. And it would be cool if you got those good stories over the 200, 250 plate appearances that you could see in like a really good case scenario from a Paul Meggiani or or an Alan Rodin or a, or a Martinez. But like the bulk of what's going to power this team is the 600 plus plate appearances from a Bichette, from a Guerrero, from a George Springer who led the Blue Jays in plate appearances last season um you know dalton varsho is likely to flirt with 600 plate appearances as well alejandro kirk will be in like the 450 range you hope danny jansen is also in the 450 range like that's what's powering your club like that is what is really going to do the majority of the heavy lifting when it comes to success or failure offensively sure it'd be nice to have like a robbie grossman on your bench to match up against lefties late in games when kiermeyer of our show is coming up but we're talking about a just a much smaller percentage proportionally it's not that it's not important but like it is sort of missing the the forest for a trees a bit to like really focus in with a laser eye on some of these small marginal things on the edges and ignore like the core of this team, which is mostly still intact from last year and has to be better for the Blue Jays to have better outcomes offensively. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where from a narrative standpoint, from a fan enjoyment standpoint, you take last year's team. That just wasn't a fun team. I don't think anyone involved with that team would say it was a fun team. And then you sort of run it back. And it's like, <laughs> okay, I guess we're just hoping it's going to be more fun next year. And like, look, it actually could be because every baseball season is its own season. And I, I've said this before, but like, you know, when, when opening day comes around and the Blue Jays are playing the Rays at Tropicana Field, nobody is going to be thinking about anything that happened in 2023. It's just, it's a new year. And so that does bring with it new possibilities, both, you know, good and bad. And, you know, I think that at the center of that, uh, you know, or, or somewhere in the middle of that will be Justin Turner. So when you saw that the Blue Jays had landed him on that one year, $13 million deal, what did you think? I, I apologize for derailing us. And I uh, thank you for putting us back on the tracks there. Uh, the Blue Jays, <laughs> they, they made their, I guess, their marquee signing of the offseason in uh, Justin Turner. Uh, it depends how you feel about Yariel Rodriguez, uh, if and when that gets to the finish line. But yeah, what I think I thought, well, you know, what I've said on previous podcasts that I preferred J.D. Martinez and I preferred Reese Hoskins um, in this market, but I think I like the Turner fit more than I liked the Peterson fit. Uh, I like the Turner fit on a short-term deal more than I liked Solaire on a multi-year pact. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and I, I know you feel that way as uh, <laughs> you know, Jorge Solaire hater number one in this market. Um, Gotta say, but... I was a tiny bit relieved when they didn't sign Solaire. <laughs> Got to admit that I just uh, I could have I could have worn it. I was willing to wear it, but yeah, it was a little relief that set in. No, but I think you were right in saying like he just never felt like a fit for the Blue Jays. Like, yeah. He just never felt like a target 
for them. Um, it just didn't really make sense for a number of reasons. But, you know, with Turner, like it just sort of it depends on if he has like one more well above average season in him. Like he's already been bucking the trend for so many years through his age 38 year of just like having these really solid above average years at a time when you would think that the bat speed should be declining and maybe the pitch recognition isn't quite as sharp and maybe he has to start cheating to get to certain things and the league kind of figures out what he's doing to be successful and is able to counter that effectively when you would think that like the durability would start to be in question. Um, Justin Turner has like continued to post late into um, his 30s. It's really a credit to him and how he takes care of himself and the professionalism that he brings. I think that that word professionalism is going to be uh, just ground to dust with Justin Turner this year. Um, you know, not only off the field where, you know, you would expect he's going to be a big clubhouse impact and uh, a real leader for this club immediately and obviously a, a source of a ton of wisdom and knowledge and experience. But even just from plate appearance to plate appearance, like that, it is the one thing that like stands out to me about him as a hitter like he does not give a plate appearance away and he does not give you like he is never an easy out like he is constantly seeing a lot of pitches fouling stuff off battling like just like he's like a, a, a boxer leaning on his opponent and just like making you carry his weight you know like it, the, no hitters perfect and no hitter is going to get on base every time they're at the plate and no hitter is going to always come up with uh with a big hit but even when he makes outs even when he ends up walking back to the dugout it's after like four or five six pitches where he battled and made a guy throw a bunch of stuff and show everybody else on the bench like what he has on that night like he really does make a pitcher earn the out against him um and i think that that's something that people are really gonna you know appreciate about justin turner this year yeah, I think there's a lot there, you know, on the field, off the field. And I guess even to start with, as you as you alluded to, there is kind of the opportunity cost because once you have Justin Turner there, you're not going to be adding another DH, which is which is essentially what he is on this team. He'll bring his gloves to spring training. He'll play some positions for this team in 2024, but he's mainly going to be a DH. And, you know, I think that is I would tend to agree with the way you kind of lined these players up. I definitely would have had Hoskins uh, ahead. I thought Hoskins just because of the youth, you know, that's a that's a really appealing player. Um, but look, I do think Turner's a better fit than Jorge Soler, um, and I don't think that he's you know, like it's a different profile. But I think that he's likely to be about as productive as a Jock Peterson. Um, I mean, they're certainly getting paid comparably, so the industry values them similarly when it comes to what they can do this year. So I, I think on the field, you look at some of the projection systems and. You know, you can see that there is optimism uh, projected for 105, 110 WRC plus. Like that would be that would be great. But you know, I, I don't know if you saw this article yet, Arden. But Nick Ashbourne looked at the history of 39 year olds or, or older players uh, who got at least 400 plate appearances in the last 15 years, and man, it's it's a short list. And essentially, everyone on the list is a Hall of Famer or, you know, would be without PED concerns. Like it's Beltre, it's Pujols, it's A-Rod, it's Beltron. It's it's names like that. These are the guys who get 400 plate appearances at that point in their career. It's tough to do. You have to be a really, really good hitter. And Justin Turner has been that. And I think he could join that group. But all of this to say, it's not a guarantee once you get to be 39, 40 years old, 
it just becomes harder to to succeed consistently against the best pitchers in the world. Yeah, I looked into that stuff a little bit too when when I wrote about him after the signing. And um, last year, uh, there were only four players in their age 39 season or older who made more than 150 plate appearances. Uh, Miguel Cabrera led the way with 370 uh, on what was essentially a, a retirement tour. Uh, Joey Votto had the highest OPS of any of them at 747. Yeah. Uh, and so the Blue Jays are probably counting on Justin Turner for a bit better than a 747 OPS this year. They'd like it to be closer to the 800 that he had uh, last year. Speaking of Votto, by the way, just to echo your point, this will thankfully put an end to the Votto to the Blue Jays stuff. Uh, <laughs> Were you, you over that? Have, well, you're not adding a 40-year-old next to the 39-year-old right now. No. Uh, and Votto guys. wants playing time, so. Yeah, two guys who are primary DHs. Yeah, there's just no room for Votto here. It was, it was. I, I, I was never sold on that idea. To be honest yeah. with you, as much as I love Votto, like when you and I went to Cincy this year yeah. and he gave us a bunch of time, like we had a great conversation yeah. with him. Um, he was awesome. Like there was so much insight in those 20 minutes uh, that he shared with us on a very busy day. Super appreciative of that. But yeah, I just never thought it was a good fit for the Blue Jays. But um, like f- f- with Turner and the age, like it's, yeah, y- y- <laughs> you're almost just hoping that it like the best case is just gradual decline, right? Because he has been declining for several years now. Like this is a guy who was one of the best hitters on the planet in his Dodgers days. In the left and this ball well hit. Back toward that wall and gone. The Dodgers have opened up a can here in the sixth. And like he's no longer that. He's still solidly above average. But you just hope that the decline is gradual for another year instead of being a steep drop off, which you often do see with players late in their 30s where they like remember how Brandon Belt looked in April. Um, For a lot of guys, that's just their season when they are really late in their careers and they show up and it's oh geez he doesn't have it anymore um like just age it hits fast in mlb and like look if you want to look for them you can find them as far as just like cautionary signs with turner like really struggled with forcing fastballs last year minus seven run value against that pitch uh that is the pitch you're going to see most often at the big league level is a forcing fastball. So, uh, you know, you're going to want Justin Turner to show like just a bit better production against that pitch. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the projection systems. Um, you know, I think steamer is like pretty realistically cautious on him with the one Oh five weighted runs created. Plus I think zips is at one fifteen. realistic expectation, probably in the middle there with like a one ten. WRC plus. Um, I, I think that you know if if you're looking to kind of set expectations, that's that's probably where it should fall. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair. Um, and you know, speaking of of uh, kind of those off field benefits, I totally agree with you on Votto. He's got so many great insights on the game, and I, I actually think like hearing Justin Turner talk uh, as he was being introduced to the Toronto media. I really would put him in that category. He seems super insightful, really thoughtful. He's got tons of experience in the game alongside uh, some of the game's best players, played in the World Series with the Dodgers, played in the playoffs basically every single year with the Dodgers. So this is someone who I think, and I really liked the way he talked about relating to younger players because you know it's not as though this guy assumes he is going to command respect. He said he's going to have to earn their respect. He's going to show the younger players respect. And then hope that that leads to productive 
you know, interactions and conversations. And I thought that was such a cool way of looking at it because, you know, it's, it's really, he's not assuming anything. He's not, he's not walking in there as the, you know, thinking that he's like automatically going to be the leader of this team, but he has a chance to emerge as one of the leaders on this team because he is intent on, on showing those guys the respect that they've earned by getting to this point in their major league careers. Are you expecting like 140 games from him this year? I think if you get 140 games, you're thrilled, right? right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think if you get like, honestly, even if you get 450 plate appearances of a 105 WRC plus, that's probably a one and a half, two win player. Like you're, you're good with that, I think. So very likely he falls short of what Brandon Belt was last year. Because Brandon Belt, it was only around 400 plate appearances, but it was a 138 WRC+. plus. It was like a two and a half win season. It's kind of hard to imagine Justin Turner having that kind of impact on the Blue Jays. Yeah, Brandon Belt had a sneaky, really good season for the Jays. Um, So, you know, that is a a high bar. Um, I think like at the same time, Brandon Belt's BABIP last year was 370. There was some luck involved. You know, I just brought that up right now because I knew it was high. 370, like that's not sustainable. That's not what he was. I mean, he he did it, so I guess give him credit, but there was some some good luck in there. And I think that from a pure talent standpoint, Justin Turner has the talent to go out there. And I, I think your point about fastballs is really interesting because I think that early in the season, you're going to see teams challenge him with fastballs up in the zone and see if he can get around on it and see if he can make them pay um so that's going to be a real test for him but he's done it before he's passed that test when he was 36 and 37 and 38 so maybe he can do it when he's 39 yeah if if i'm seeing this stuff i promise you the tampa bay rays are seeing that stuff (laughs) so uh yeah he's gonna see a lot of fastballs he's gonna be targeted with righties as well like hasn't performed as well against righties in recent years, I, I certainly don't think he's like a platoon bat at all. But like, I, you know, I like I think we, we you do need to manage expectations here when you're talking about Turner, um, which is like another reason why, like, it, you know, if when you're looking at the Blue Jays offseason, it'd be great if Justin Turner and Isaiah kind of Falefa were like these luxury bench pieces that the Blue Jays were adding as like a you know super stacked contender. Um, if these were guys that they were only looking for 350, 400 plate appearances out of and looking to deploy them in optimal matchups. Um, but just the way the Blue Jays are currently constructed, they're going to start the season, unless there's another addition to come, which is always possible, but they're going to start the season really depending on IKF and Turner as near everyday players. Yeah, yeah, they really will. So you got to get those guys through healthy, um, you know, probably means we see David Schneider in the outfield uh, a fair bit as as maybe a right-handed compliment to someone like Adalton Varsho at times. But before we take a break here, I do want to close the loop on, on Turner. And you wrote this week at sportsnet.ca an interesting piece making the case that, hey, this guy should actually be considered for the leadoff spot. So tell us your thoughts there and and maybe how likely you think that it is that that actually happens unlikely that it actually <laughs> yeah. happens uh i think that george springer is gonna gonna lead off for the blue jays but like i think there is a case to be made that turner is a better option than him and that springer would be in a better option batting cleanup um and this is not to say that justin turner is the prototypical ideal leadoff hitter he absolutely is not but of the options the blue jays have i feel like he 
is the best one because the Blue Jays uh, do not have Ricky Henderson on their team. Uh, as far as I know, Ricky Henderson uh, remains retired for like decades now. So just based off of what is available to the Blue Jays, I see Turner as a guy who runs a super high OBP. He gets on base a ton. He does not strike out a lot. He walks enough. It's not like a double-digit walk rate, but it's pretty close. Um, as we were talking about earlier, he like really battles, makes a pitcher work. We were talking about like a top 10 player in pitches per plate appearance. So you know that he is like not going to be a quick out early in a game. He is going to make a pitcher throw all this stuff, show the rest of the bench, like what he is utilizing on that day. Um, and then the contact rates as well with Turner, like are exceptional. It's one thing that like really has not dropped off for him late in his career. Last year, he ran like close to an 85% contact rate. Um, he just gets his bat to everything. And I think that that's really valuable in, in a leadoff hitter when it comes to spe- spoiling pitches, fouling stuff off, just putting the ball in play and putting a little bit of pressure on the defense. Um, you know, and like when you're leading off, Justin Turner being a leadoff hitter does not mean he can't be a quote unquote run producer. When you're leading off, you are only guaranteed to hit without runners on base once in a game. After that, the next three times, four times that you come up, there are liable to be runners on base. And when you think about it, like where is the speed in the Blue Jays lineup going to be? It's going to be towards the bottom with Varsho, with Kiermaier. Um, that's pretty much it. Blue Jays aren't going to be a great speed team. That's another reason why, like, I think you just write off the speed element of it because the Blue Jays aren't going to be a team that's going to like burn around the bases. They were a really poor base running team last year and they just lost like so to bad. a... They just lost two of their better base runners in Merrifield and Chapman and replaced them with like IKF, who's so-so, and Turner, who's going to be like one of the slowest guys in the league. So the Blue Jays aren't going to be this like, you know, burn around the bases team. So why do you care about having, there's nobody that you're going to put in the leadoff spot who's going to be a burner. Um, If anything, you're going to have Varsho and Kiermaier coming up towards the bottom of your lineup and if they are getting on base, then now you have Turner coming up from the leadoff spot to ideally drive them in um, or to at least like extend late innings when you are either trying to pad a lead or, or trying to rally. So I, I think that of the options the Blue Jays have, he's one of their better fits for leadoff. Yeah, I think it is a fit. I mean, it's it's an interesting and you by the way you just brought back so many flashbacks when you when you mentioned the base running of last year's team i it was so so bad and i, I don't see so, why they're gonna be any better I no yeah it's, right? it's a fair point chapman honestly was pretty good for the most part um and then everyone's a year older yeah i wouldn't count on this to be a great base running team by any stretch i mean they need to get out of their own way that's the biggest thing and they can do that they just need to make better decisions on the bases that'll be big for them in the spring um that has to happen because you cannot hand opponents that many outs the way they did in 2023 and it's i mean it's a good thing that they have a new new season ahead of them because that was one of the reasons that uh last year was was not the the year they wanted but as far as turner yeah like you know i think that they're going to start the season with springer as leadoff hitter it sounds like you you know sort of expect that as well um but Hey, if Springer misses a week and a half with a hamstring, like you could easily put Justin Turner up there. And, you know, end of the day, you're just stacking your better hitters at the top. He is one of their better hitters. I see no reason that he couldn't be a candidate, even if I do think that Springer, by virtue of what he's done in that role over the course of his career, is likely to be the one who starts the season there. Well, and I think that Springer is just a better bet 
this year as well to slug to make really hard contact consistently to run a high barrel rate or at least a higher barrel rate than Justin Turner who ran a career low one in 2023 like I just think that like Springer's more of a power threat at this point so I'd actually rather have him batting clean up with Bo hitting second than Vlad hitting third um like again I get that Justin Turner is going to be not only like one of the slowest players on the Blue Jays but one of the slowest players in baseball but i mean the rays didn't really care that andy diaz is super slow like that didn't stop them from batting him lead off um the phillies don't care that cal schwarber doesn't you know burn around the bases i mean they hit him lead off um you know guys like jp crawford and um altuve brandon nimmo like these aren't super fast players uh but they're all effective leadoff hitters because they like work really discerning and grinding plate appearances and they make a lot of contact and they run really above average on base percentages like i just think that you know, we, we have expanded our idea of what a leadoff hitter can be. Um, and if Ricky Henderson isn't on your roster, you kind of have to deal with the personnel that you have and of the personnel that the Blue Jays have. You know, I, I kind of look at it objectively and just look at the the profiles, type of hitters that they are. And I think that Justin Turner is a bit of a better option, a bit of a better fit for this Blue Jays lineup than George Springer. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a reasonable case um, for sure. So you know, it's really just just get on base and, and go from there. And Turner can do that. Um, we will step aside here for a moment on at the letters, but we still have Vlad Guerrero Jr.'s uh, arbitration to discuss, and we will also look ahead a little bit when we continue. Listen to at the letters ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Two down for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Welcome back to At the Letters. And look, we have to get to the big news of the week, which is the Vlad Guerrero Jr. arbitration hearing. Maybe in your world. The big news uh, in Ben's world. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, he's been waiting all off season for this. You know what? It's the big news in the in the world of the Blue Jays, and this is now in the books. We know that he beat the Blue Jays uh, in arbitration. He will get nineteen point nine million instead of the eighteen point oh five million that the Blue Jays had offered him. And it's just, I I don't really know where to begin with this, but you know, first of all, I I we said last week, like I I thought that Vladdy was going to win this case thought that the Blue Jays filed a super, super, super aggressive number and that their chances of winning were pretty slim. Not surprised at all that Vladdy won this case. It's just not a great vibe. It's not a great look. I don't think it's catastrophic, but it's not a great look for anyone here. You said it's you know big news in the Blue Jays world. I feel like it's bigger news in the MLB world globally just because this is a pretty historic decision. Like This is the highest salary ever awarded via arbitration this is like setting um a precedent for all arbitrations that could and would involve similar players uh going forward you know i think that and you would know this there would have been heavy involvement uh on the players side via the player association and then on the team side by the league so like i don't think this is like the the biggest news in the blue jays world but i do think that like more globally across mlb it it is you know something that's going to be noted 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on a, on a quiet week in February, I would say it probably is the biggest news in the Blue Jays world. But yeah, you're, you're totally right to say that it's also big within the MLB landscape in the sense that, you know, you, you do have implications for the broader industry here. And I think that partly what's happening here is the Blue Jays, along with MLB and the labor relations department, you take a swing here. And if, if the Blue Jays had won this case, this would have had implications for the next position player who goes in there with numbers comparable to Vlad, because at that point, if the raise is 3.55 million and that's established as precedent for the kind of season that he had, where he was pushing up against 30 and a hundred. And if that becomes a $3.55 million raise, that is really good for teams that want to limit their costs and really bad for players. But Ultimately, you know, and this is why I said last week that I thought Vladdy was going to win is that was a number that was super aggressive and it just the the precedent was more on the side of the player in the view of the arbitrators, clearly. Um, and when you look at Pete Alonso and Juan Soto, the raises they got six for Alonso, 5.9 for Juan Soto. These are raises that everyone agrees those guys had better seasons than Vladdy. No one's saying that Vladdy was at that level, but he was closer to that level. Than he was to 3.55. So he ends up getting nearly 20 million in ARB. Yeah. And, you know, playing time is a huge consideration in this as well. Uh, and Vlad is a guy who has posted consistently over the course of his career. And, you know, you mentioned the raises, and that's, you know, that's fair. But, like, when it comes to an arbitration hearing, like, for both sides, are you not just trying to manipulate the midpoint, which. Yeah. Right. In this case would have been like just a, a hair under nineteen million. It would have been like eighteen point nine seven or something like that. Um just considering just trying to do some quick math here. Uh like essentially if you're on Guerrero's side, like you're not trying to convince the arbitrators that you're worth nineteen point nine million. You're trying to convince them that you are worth a penny above the midpoint, that you're yep. worth nineteen million. And if you're the Blue Jays, you're not trying to convince the arbitrators that Vlad's worth 18.05 you're trying to convince them that he's worth like 18.8 so I don't you know that's just I think some necessary context when we look at you know the the raises that um Soto and and Alonzo got versus Vlad and I think the other the other like interesting context to this as well is that like Vlad's situation like it's so unique like it's such an interesting confluence of factors where he had this early season debut in his rookie year that allowed him to be a super two player so he's taking four trips through Alonzo's only taken three trips through and then he had this monster MVP season or MVP caliber season MVP finalist season in 2021 right before he entered the process. So like he could not have timed the best season of his career to this point any better than yeah. having that in 2021 because like as I'm sure you have heard many many times in arbitration if you start low you're going to end low and if you start high you have a much better chance of ending high. So uh you know it, it, the the confluence of factors around Vlad being super two and just around what his season his platform season entering the first year of the process was I think that plays into this as well and makes him a bit more unique and a bit harder to just like map his numbers onto Alonso's. And even as you move ahead here because he has one more remaining arbitration year then for 2025, by winning this case, that means that he will be platforming off of 19.9. So 
whatever he ends up with next year, let's say it's a $5 million raise for argument's sake, then boom, that's 25. Instead of if he had earned a $5 million raise on closer to 18, then it's 23. So these gains will continue uh, to build for Vlad Guerrero Jr. At this point, like, I don't know. We haven't heard from Vlad Guerrero Jr. It'll be interesting to hear what he has to say likely next week when he addresses the media at spring training. So we'll learn more about his perspective then. And that's super important in this. Um, But, you know, outside looking in, my guess is the same process occurs next year and then he hits free agency. I, I don't think that this was the kind of arbitration back and forth that necessarily lays a ton of groundwork for a deal. And so I'm certainly not holding my breath for a Vlad Guerrero Jr. extension announcement. Yeah, and, and we kind of got into the like discomfort or the unease of the, the process, some of the tension or like consternation that can arise from this in certain cases. Like we talked about that last week. Um, so, you know, you probably don't need to go through it all again. But like I will say, like one thing that I do notice is that uh, media and fans um, really tend to kind of like over-dramatize these hearings a little bit. Like they portray it like it's a movie like it's Glenn Gary and Ross or something and the Blue Jays are gonna like walk into that room and be yelling and screaming and you know like just emotionally like tearing Vlad apart as a competitor and an athlete and a human being uh, I think it's much more likely that it was just a very business-like proceeding uh and it, the Blue Jays in a very like calculated and calm manner just presented some alternative comparables to Soto and Alonso that ended up with lower salaries when they went through arbitration and just made like a very calm argument about why Vlad's case is more like those players than it is alike Soto and uh, Alonso. Yeah, and I don't see any ill will here on the part of the Blue Jays, and I don't think that their intention with this was you know personal or loaded or charged. Um, and, and I do think that you're right to observe that well, some fans and media, you know, maybe maybe add meaning onto some of this stuff when there's not meaning intended from the Blue Jays. But again, that still leaves open the possibility of how does Vlad Jr. interpret this? And even if the Blue Jays don't go into this with any ill will, which I don't think they do, I, you know, Mark Shapiro has been working in, in and around arbitration for decades and decades. Ross Atkins has been around this world for decades. So this isn't their first arbitration case or their second or their third. But for Vladdy, it's his first time you know, in a hearing room. For him, this means more. This is one of only a handful of times that he's ever going to go through arbitration. So there's more personal meaning attached to it from his end than there is from the Blue Jays. And again, we don't know exactly how he is going to feel about this or what it was like to be in that room as the Blue Jays were making these arguments. But I I don't want to assume one way or the other. And I'm going to be really interested to see how he frames this once we do hear from him because you know, even if it wasn't intended as a personal affront, um, you know, this is, this stuff can be taken in ways that, that wasn't intended on the part of the team. Yeah. You got to allow him the opportunity to say his piece about it and let him know, let us know his, his thoughts and where he stands on it. Um, But I do think like, regardless of how he feels about it, his motivations and his incentives to perform as well as possible for the Toronto Blue Jays in 2024 and 2025 remain unchanged. 
regardless of how he feels about what happened in that room, like he's still playing for that raise on 19-9 that you identified. Like with a, a good season in 2024, like he can go up to $25, $26 million for 2025. Like he has the same incentives to go out and perform well for himself and, and for the Blue Jays. And as we talked about last time, it's not like an extension was... Uh, realistic between these two sides at this time. Um, certainly not like the uh, you know the not not really a two year extension either, right? Like not a ten year one and not a two year one. Like I just don't think that there was really reason on either side to like go down that road. Like I think both sides were disincentivized from from having an extension of any uh, length at this time. So that doesn't change. Um, like I just don't, even if Vlad is a little bit pissed about how this went down, I just don't know what it materially changes going forward. Right. He's going to be super motivated. I think he's going to have a really good year. I think he's going to be a hugely important part of this team. I mean, these are the most like obvious statements you could make, right? Like Vlad is so important to this team, obviously. And I do think that he'll get over it, but we'll see what he has to say. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, you see at the same time someone like Bobby Witt Jr. signing a huge, huge extension with the Kansas City Royals, and he's a two-plus service time player um, as as opposed to, you know, Vladdy, who's now well into his arbitration years. And so I, I sort of think the more time goes by here, when you look at both Vladdy and Bo, the window, if you were ever going to extend these guys, was probably a couple years ago. And I just don't see that really happening at this moment in time. Yeah, but and that's the sort of stuff that the Blue Jays, as a team that is willing to like run payrolls in excess of the luxury tax, they don't necessarily have to do that stuff because they can compete for these players in the free agent market. Teams like the Royals have to do stuff like that or at least feel like they have to do stuff. They obviously could spend as much money as uh, you know as they want at any given time, but they don't. We know that. We know many teams don't spend uh, you know as much money as like the sport permits you to spend, even just below the kind of soft cap of the luxury tax. So like I do feel like smaller market, lower um, payroll teams like the Royals and others feel like they have to sign those long-term extensions early in players' careers where the Blue Jays can feel a bit more confident that, yeah, we can run things out year to year. Like we can stomach really high salaries of $19.9 million in, in arbitration. Like we can fit that in our payroll, uh, in our budget. And then when the player goes to market and goes out and sees what their actual market is with all 30 teams if they go out and get like a really good offer somewhere we can match it or exceed it or we can let that player go for draft pick compensation but like you you know i don't think that the blue jays have as much worry about letting players go year to year through arb and then reach the open market and actually realize their worth as a lot of other teams do right and if you're the biggest and best teams out there if you're the yankees you can re-sign aaron judge if you're the Dodgers, you can re-sign Clayton Kershaw. Um, but, you know, it's also interesting with the Dodgers. A lot of the time, they let guys go. And so whether that's, you know, a Bellinger or a Seager or so many cases over the years, they've they've let really, really good players go. Trey Turner, um, Manny Machado. And that's, that's part of how they do their business too. So we'll see how that unfolds uh, with the Jays here. Before we move on, Arden, anything else you want to add on Vladdy and arbitration? 
No, but you mentioned the wit deal, which like I think is such a great deal for him this early yeah. in his career, like guaranteeing himself two seventy or whatever it was, two hundred and eighty million dollars, uh, however much the actual overall guarantee is with all those opt outs. Like the amount of control that the Royals gave Bobby Witt Jr. over the direction of their franchise at multiple instances uh in that deal uh is is remarkable. Um like I just I love that deal for Bobby Witt at this point in in his career um and honestly don't love it for the royals but do love seeing them uh like spend the money and do love seeing them like give out a contract just of that scale obviously something that they haven't done before like very happy to see that but very much understand why like the blue jays would not have signed boba to that deal uh yes. two years into his career yes and and bobby wood jr too is a different player just when you look at from a pure skill standpoint someone who is 99th percentile speed like i don't know that's that's a special special skill um that that he has um and yeah i think it's a home run for bobby wood jr i like it for kansas city still like i if you're the royals i don't think you want to undo that deal like i i think he's such a good player that you probably want to do what you can to keep him around I just don't love the opt-outs just purely from their perspective. Um, like I'm happy this deal happened because it's fascinating and I'm always happy to see players get paid and always happy to see players have a ton of control over their careers. Like that's just what kind of blows my mind about is the amount of control that the Royals like gave to him. Like I, he did not kick back as much to them in this deal as I would have expected he would need to in order to get those opt-outs with like was it 35 million dollar salaries like he basically yeah for four years running will have the choice of going to market and signing an even bigger deal or just having a 35 million dollar salary in yeah. the next year and so what and he ended up giving them like uh I think it was just three years of his potential free agency in exchange for like a hundred million dollars so yeah. I just think this deal is like such a win for Bobby Witt yeah they must love him as a dude because yeah they're they're making a big bet you're not going to make a lot of signings like this if you're if you're the Kansas City Royals but there are four off seasons consecutively where he can just like completely hard left turn like the trajectory of their franchise. Yeah, it's you know? a, it's a great deal for him. It really is. Um, <laughs> it's a we don't control the game. <laughs> um, uh, now that's probably the most time we've ever spent spent talking about the Kansas City Royals on ATL in a long time. But uh, it's a really interesting deal. Maybe from there we'll go back to the American League East, where there was another deal that that does warrant some attention from us and after a very very quiet offseason for the most part the Orioles went out there and they acquired Corbin Burns and for the Blue Jays for anyone in the American League East this is a pretty big deal Corbin Burns is an ace he's one of the top 15 pitchers in baseball now he's going to be in Baltimore as you're looking at the American League East right now Arden I mean how does this Burns trade shape your understanding of Baltimore great deal for the Orioles um now they need to extend him and also sign Blake Snell to a <laughs> yeah. like five or six year deal. And then I will uh, finally uh, give the Orioles their full due. But this is at least a step in the right direction. Like I've been getting on the Orioles forever about how they won't do anything to surround this incredible young core with talent. So I have to give them some flowers for actually going out and doing the damn thing and really like not paying a crazy price either yeah. to acquire um, Corbin Burns. So uh, yeah, good for them. Burns is like top 10 pitcher in baseball. 
probably, you know, you might say top 15, you might even say top five, like kind of depends on how you feel about the season he just had, but dude is durable. Dude is a competitor. He's nasty. Um, I can't wait for the first Burns v. Gossman uh, matchup that we're going to see this year because like that's that game is going to be like two hours long and it's going to be just incredible theater to watch and it's going to be tight and intense and the plate appearances are going to be absolute grinds for the hitters and it's just going to be wicked to watch that um and as like as far as the at least more globally like it's going to be a bloodbath and it's just it's been the most competitive division in baseball essentially like my entire life (laughs) yeah you know i'm 36 years old and i don't remember a time when it wasn't like man the al east is stacked you know um you look at the projections and what for the five teams are like within the top 10 across mlb and i think you know you know which teams those obviously are and i think you can even just like squint and see the red sox being competitive and having some things go right for them um, and being at least like a 500 team, maybe a little bit below, but like they got some decent youth coming out of their system, you know, debuted Rafaela last year. They got more guys coming. Um, they play in like a crazy ballpark where crazy things happen and they get crazy results. So yeah, it's going to be just a super competitive division. It is a disadvantage for the Blue Jays, like relative to the Twins or the Cardinals who don't have to build like teams as good as the Blue Jays would have to in order to win their division. Like you could win one of those central divisions with like 86, 87 wins. Uh, that ain't going to happen for the Blue Jays or for the Rays or the Yankees or the Orioles. Um, but I don't know, like getting mad at like the competitiveness of the division is kind of like just yelling at the sky about the weather. Like it's just not energy well spent. It is what it is. It's the best league in the world. It's the best division within the best league in the world. It's going to be really competitive and really compelling theater. And you just sign up for the ride, strap in and enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's Major League Baseball. You're going to be facing good teams. If you want to win the World Series, you're going to have to beat really good teams. And it, like you say, it's totally unproductive to really dwell on, oh, what if it was a little easier? Like you're you're in this to compete against the best and beat the best. And that's the challenge facing all these teams. I, I think the Burns trade, I agree. I think it's a great deal for Baltimore. Absolutely love it for them. I think it's a pretty... Good deal for Milwaukee, too. I mean, I hate to say it. You'd love to see them maybe spend and retain talent a little bit more, but Joey Ortiz is a major league infielder. That's going to help them. D.L. Hall can be at least a major league reliever for one year of a pitcher who you know wasn't going to resign with Milwaukee. So I like that deal for the Brewers, and you know we'll see what they do with Willie Adamas if there's a further trade to be made there. But Clearly, the Brewers have have visions of competing a little bit as well. Um, but, you know, the Orioles needed an ace and they get one. And I think that that's good for Baltimore. And I think it's scary for everyone else in that division. Yeah. And so when you even just look at the AL East and you look at the fan graphs projections on how they think this division's going to shake out like i like i bet you some blue jays fans are kind of surprised with how the blue jays land and like the various projections that are coming out this week this is projections week when it's you yeah. know pakoda and you know, zips and steamer and then the fangrass depth charts which does a really good job um but you you look at those fangrass depth charts and like no team in the al east is given even a 40 percent chance 
of winning the division. So like I think it's kind of like a mistake to just, you know, kind of look at the the win total and just look at where the Blue Jays are in the projected like one, two, three, four, five standing. Like realize that there are four teams in this division. The Fangrass Fields has a double digit chance of winning the division. Like it is super competitive. There is a lot of overlap in these projections um like when you were looking at the win distributions like not just the the blue jays are going to win 89.3 games but the distributions between like the 25th percentile outcome and the 75th there's a ton of overlap between the top four teams in this division and it just would not take much in the way of injuries or um unexpected over or under performance that could swing the fates of one to all of these teams jumble things up and make things like fall out in in a different way than we're expecting like it just it looks like four really good teams in this division they're going to be jockeying for position well into late august and early september yeah it's going to be so competitive in that mix i i think that the yankees are a good team and i'm almost surprised at how much the projections like the yankees it's like it, they really do seem to put New York at the top. And I like the Stroman ad for them. Obviously, Juan Soto is a monster. I mean, that's a great pickup for the Yankees. But I personally, we talked about this before, I still see Baltimore as the top team. I think Baltimore is going to be really, really good. Um, and I think the Jays and Yankees and Rays are in a, a really close tier, not that far behind. And all three of those teams, I think, could make real pushes for the division. If not, they'll obviously be in the mix for wild cards. But... Yeah, this is going to be a super competitive division once again. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying last week. Like, People get way too high on teams um, following seasons in which they overperform expectations, i.e. the Orioles, and they get way too low on teams following seasons in which they underperform expectations, i.e. the Yankees, who missed the playoffs altogether while the Orioles won over 100 games like the thing about projection systems and you can take it or leave it with projections like i get it right but the thing about them is they do not care what happened last year like they don't care the orioles won 100 games or that the yankees missed the playoffs like all they do is project each individual player going forward make some playing time estimations add up the totals on each team spit out a number and then adjust as new information presents itself each day throughout the regular season um so like you know i I know people get frustrated with them and want to point out their flaws and you know where they are wrong and yes projections are often wrong as george box said all models are wrong but some are useful ben and i do think that the projection systems are useful for just removing the bias of what happened last year and how we feel generally about teams just of being objective modeled on historical data um just being free of that emotional bias that we are all carrying around with us at all times whether we like to or not i think (laughs) that i think that over time we have seen that that models and projection systems are more likely to be accurate than your gut intuition Uh, because none of us could possibly process the wealth of data and information that a model can. So they're not the be-all and end-all. They're going to be wildly off about some players, but they're going to be pretty close on many more. And I think that's why we look to them to kind of guide our thoughts entering a season at this point on February 8th when we know literally nothing about what's (laughs) going to happen. 
yeah, it's useful, right? And look, like, do you want a projection system just to confirm what you already think every single time? Because to <laughs> me, that sounds, do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. That sounds pretty boring, right? If I go, if in my mind, I think the Orioles are the best and everywhere I look, it says, yes, Ben, you're right. The Orioles are the best. Then like, what's the point of that? I've learned nothing. I haven't expanded or brought in my perspective at all. So these things are really useful just from the standpoint of making you reconsider some of your assumptions. Um, and I think too, hey, they could change if and when more information becomes available and we're at a point in the offseason where there still are a lot of big free agents out there and even some smaller free agents. So it's worth repeating as, you know, I know we said we're sort of done with the offseason stuff, but like the Blue Jays can still upgrade and there is room on this team for another right-hand hitting outfielder. You and I have talked about it. We've both written about it. Um, but it, it's worth mentioning once again because, you look at this roster and yeah, you probably don't want Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermaier, two guys with career OPSs below 700 against left-handed pitching to be facing lefties all the time. You want to have some reasonable alternative and there are major league players out there who can help. And so that makes sense as an avenue for the Jays to explore. Yeah. And I, this isn't to say that the Blue Jays can't still add towards like the top end of their roster um you know by all means like go sign cody bellinger go sign matt chapman i think the blue jays right now look at the markets for those two players um and do not want to pay the price that is being asked for them considering a lot of the red flags and their profiles and considering how they would kind of time with the way the rest of the blue jays roster and payroll is timed uh over the next two years and beyond and like yes there is the possibility that if their markets crater and that if prices come down the blue jays could get involved but Guess what's going to happen if those prices come down? Jed Hoyer is going to be more involved. And Farhan Zaidi is going to be more involved. Like, it's not just the Blue Jays who are out here looking for a deal. So I don't really buy yeah. the argument that, oh, the prices come down and the Blue Jays are going to sign one of these guys. You know, the prices come down and a lot more teams are going to be interested in signing those guys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't look really realistic to me right now that either of them are signed with the Blue Jays. It's possible. And like I said, the Blue Jays absolutely should look to add more impact. But just looking more realistically towards what they could do on the bench with the money that is available to them. By the way, they're like, I don't know, five and a half million bucks from that second luxury tax threshold. Do they want to go beyond that? Could they go beyond that? We don't know, but it is something to keep in mind. Yeah, I do look to like a right-handed hitter on the bench, um, uh, preferably an outfielder, preferably somebody who's a capable outfielders so you're not like running davis schneider and isaiah kiner falafa out into outfield corners late in games too often um and when you look around like the free agent market like tommy fan sticks out and michael a taylor and adam duvall um but those guys are going to cost you know eight nine ten million dollars and, and they'll want playing time they're gonna be looking for opportunity more than the Blue Jays can give them, right? The Blue Jays can't really give them um, the expanded role that they're going to want. So then you go down a tier, right? And you look at, well, yeah, Robbie Grossman looks like a great fit. Switch hitter who, uh, you know, is a OPS uh, over 800 against lefties for his career. Like annually runs chase and walk rates among the most disciplined hitters in the league. Uh, you know, he would definitely be a fit, but like he was a fit last season as well. And the Blue Jays didn't go down that road. So 
we'll see if that's somebody. Um, I think that like on a minor league deal, you could look to like a Kike Hernandez or um, an AJ Pollock and like bring them into camp and see if they still have something, see if they can make the team. I think there's some trade possibilities out there. Like I was just mentioning the Giants, like their position to start a rookie, Marco Luciano at shortstop. Um, and he's a really good prospect, uh, you know, consensus top 30, top 40 guy, but he's still a rookie at the game's highest level. So the Blue Jays might want to have, or excuse me, the Giants might want to have something a bit more proven just to spell him. And just in case there are some growing pains at the big league level, you know, Brandon Crawford's now gone. Um, Tyro Estrada's playing second base. So maybe Santiago Espinal is useful to the Giants as a, a bit of a backup shortstop and a bench infielder. And then maybe the Blue Jays say, hey, Austin Slater is uh, you know, a right-handed outfield bench bat who's in like his final year prior to free agency. And I think he's making around four million bucks. Uh, Espinal is making like two and a half. Um, you know, maybe it makes maybe there's a framework there for the Blue Jays to add their right-handed outfield bench bat in Slater. Um, maybe it's JD Davis who could come in to play some third base and not have to have Isaiah Kiner Falefa um starting every single day. Maybe he's a guy who comes in and, and plays against lefties. Uh, you know, again, another pending free agent. Uh, and the Giants, just because they have a strong system, could uh pretty easily backfill for both of those situations. So I, I looked at that as a potential fit, and then I also looked to the Washington Nationals who have this like crazy right-handed outfielder surplus in Lane Thomas and Victor Robles and Stone Garrett, Alex Call, Jacob Young. They got really good prospects on the way in James Wood and Dylan Cruz. Um, they have a surplus in uh, right-handed hitting outfielders. So I think Lane Thomas is the guy you would want, but he would also drive the highest bargain. Stone Garrett, bit of a wild card. His you know year ended with a pretty catastrophic injury. What's it going to be coming back? Maybe Alex Call is the guy who had like a really underwhelming offensive year last year, but hit pretty well against lefties, uh, manages the strike zone, runs a bit, um, and is a good defender. We know the Blue Jays value those things. So the acquisition cost there ought to be low. And uh, he also has options remaining. So the Blue Jays could just like send him a triple A if things aren't, aren't working out. So those are a couple of trade possibilities I would look at as well. Interesting. You know, it's funny in the, in these jobs, we hear a lot of like unrealistic trade possibilities and, uh, you know, and that's fun. That's part of the job. But I think, uh, you know, the Espinal for Slater framework is like the opposite of that. It's like, it's not the sort of thing that's going to get fans like buzzing and all like in every like message board. It's not like the, you know, lead, like have all kinds of people calling into to fan 590 to discuss it, but it's actually kind of a framework that sort of makes sense for both sides. So you never know. I mean, I think that could sort of make some sense. If I'm the Jays, I'd even try to like go a little bigger and I would try to get something done for William Adamas and, you know, try to just, just push in that extra prospect to get it done um, just to augment your position player core. Cause you know, you're going to have opportunity in the course of a long season. So, uh, but I do think, you know, barring that something along the lines of, Hey, a deal for someone like an Austin Slater, like, that's that actually would help and that might be the sort of thing that on March 15th it's not a headline maker but it's a it's a move that sneakily could upgrade and and look barring that maybe it's a minor league deal maybe it's a waiver claim someone less even less known than an Austin Slater less established than you know than an Alex call we're really getting down the list but that's possible as well 
Yeah, it's hard to be less established than Alex Call, but like this, <laughs> this is usually where I trend is towards the more realistic, unsexy, um, just like need for need. It makes sense and upgrades a team slightly, moves. Like, look, I think Rob or F. Snyder would be a great fit. I don't know why the Red Sox would ever trade him at this point, but Rob or F. Snyder is exactly what the Blue Jays need, just in terms of like a vet, good clubhouse guy, would be accepting of the role. He hits lefties really well. He's okay in the outfield everybody would like having him around it would be a great quote for us like he would just he would fit so well um you know i'm looking at like mark canna who is the guy the blue jays should have gotten last yeah. deadline. like he was the fit for them at last deadline and i bet you they're calling the tigers about mark canna at, at this coming deadline because what? like tigers are gonna be buying man come on no yeah I, I, i'm gonna disagree with you on that one ben <laughs> uh, i say that because like the deadline thing because i don't think this is something the blue jays will find a solution for prior to the regular season we'll see i feel like they'll probably just kind of wait it out until the end of spring and see if somebody like shakes loose on waivers like see if this year's jordan luplo um you know becomes available like i kind of think that's where this is heading but maybe it's not who knows the Yankees crater and the Tigers get Juan Soto from New York oh at the deadline. Um, all right. That's probably my, my that's cue to happen. wrap up the podcast. Um, <laughs> if we're into that territory, um, anything else as far as uh, the Blue Jays here, any uh, thoughts on how they stand within the American League East, any other last minute trade proposals you want to toss out there? I'll go on record right now and say like, like I'm not going to, because everybody for the next two months is going to be... And by the way, the next two months... Like, we are so far away from, like, a game that counts, Ben. <laughs> like, we're eight weeks away from a game that counts. We were just talking about the trade deadline. That's, like, six months away. Um, The end of the regular season is eight months away. Like, we'll be completely different people by that <laughs> point. The Blue Jays, like, as a roster, will have turned over by, like, about 50%. Like, from... You think about their 26-man roster on opening day. And they're 26 man roster on the last day of the regular season. Yeah. I like close to 50% turnover is wow. not unusual. You, is it really that? I would have guessed like, I would have guessed a third. I, I would put it somewhere between 33 to 50. Yeah. Um, It'll be a like, lot. It's going to be a lot. You're going to yeah. have injuries. Guys are going to get DFA'd. Guys are going to get released. Guys are going to, um, you know, make mistakes on social media. Like A lot of crazy things happen in the course of a baseball season. Um, there's going to be trades. There's going to be players added. There's going to be minor league success stories. Like maybe Damiano Palmegiani is the everyday third baseman by by August. Maybe Alan Roden, you know, just literally by sheer force of nature, uh, it forces his way onto this team like Davis Schneider did last year like maybe ricky tiedemann is like starting really big games down the stretch like I just, the the roster is going to look completely different so like it's so it's just folly to make any kind of prediction right now like none of us know anything none of us know what will actually happen when they play the games um and i get that this isn't what people want like people want really like strong and emotional and forceful opinions but there is a lot of that out there, actually, if you want that. So you can go find it. Um, <laughs> what you can't find is the person who, at this time a year ago, said the Texas Rangers were going to play the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. Uh, you can't find that. You could find um, a lot of people who said, like, the Padres and Mets just both won the offseason and amassed all of this talent and built juggernauts. And, oh, my goodness, like, what a battle it's going to be between these two teams neither of them qualified for October. So I think it's it's helpful to keep that in mind. 
And I think the other thing that's helpful to keep in mind as well is that if the Blue Jays won 10 more games last year and finished with 99 wins, you know what they would have ended up doing? Going to the Trop to play a two-game wildcard series. The Blue Jays could have won 10 more games and ended up in the same situation, going off to play a two-game wildcard series on the road. So I'm not saying the Blue Jays shouldn't play to win the division. I'm not saying that like that shouldn't be the goal. But just because like the Blue Jays aren't set up right now, don't appear right now to be contenders for the AL East, doesn't mean they can't have a successful 2024. Yeah, and I mean, to your point earlier, they kind of are contenders for the American League East. It's just they, with a better offseason, they could have been even stronger contenders for it. I agree. Yeah. Um, well, look, hey, so you said you... Uh, have some some caution when it comes to making predictions but um that's not going to stop me from asking you to make one last one before we step away here uh the super bowl is coming up this weekend i've got a prediction it's going to be kansas city 23 san francisco 16 and uh this is your chance arden if you want to throw a super bowl prediction out there this is your moment uh i guess that i will be rooting for the 49ers just to see something different happen uh because i really like brock purdy as uh you know like the last pick in the draft and uh this guy who is you know just overcome throughout his uh career in the nfl and who is a really solid game manager so give me the 49ers i think mahomes is built for these moments his presence of mind and composure is different he is just different he is (laughs) incredible i know you're saying that somewhat ironically but like he is a like his focus and his confidence is off the charts it is his his self-belief is exactly what you need as a professional athlete. It is like it's unbelievable how much he believes in himself, and he is—he's so talented. He backs it up. Mahomes is really tough to stop in these moments. So I'm—I'm I'm going with Kansas City. Is this like his fifth or his sixth Super Bowl? Something like feels that? like it's every year, right? That in itself, in and of itself, for a guy who like can't be a day over thirty at this point, like that's he's like twenty-seven. Like he's yeah. <laughs> that's like. That's pretty impressive. Like you are watching one of the greats, whether you like them or not. You're watching one of the all-time greats right now. Just love sports. Uh, Last prediction for me, Taylor Swift will be there. She'll make it. Cool. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Oh, man. There it is. You heard it here first on At The Letters. That's uh, all our Super Bowl content for for this week. We'll come back and uh, discuss more when there are further baseball updates. In the meantime, thank you all so much for listening and sticking with us here on ATL. On behalf of Arden Welling, Christian Ryan, and Nick Andrade, we will talk to you soon.